Time to talk a little jazz basketball and look ahead to the 2022 season after a busy offseason. David Locke joins us on the Smart Rain guest line. It's no secret that Utah's in an extreme drought. That's why Smart Rain is a solution for any commercial property concerned about water consumption while managing irrigation. Find out more at smartrain.net. David Locke, his weekly interview brought to you by the Murdoch Auto Team. David, good morning. Good morning, David. Good morning, Patrick. Hi. Beautiful blue sky. I can see the mountains again. No smoke. How's everybody? Uh, we're good, but we're wondering how the new partnership uh, with BYU is going to impact your partnership with Built Bar. Any forecast for that? Um, I think we've been good to Built Bar. Built Bar's been good to us. That usually keeps partnerships together. And there it is. They're just, yeah, gonna... just like my marriage. <laughs> 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 Followed by an uncomfortable silence. All right. <laughs> we've been good for each other. What's wrong with that? I hope for the best for you two, too. David, you have been on vacation, so we have not spoken to you about the many moves in the NBA. What move of all of these struck you as a championship move? Who did something you thought, well, they just helped themselves big time? Uh, that's interesting. I don't know if there was one other than people keeping themselves in contention, right? So um, Chris Paul... Um, though that's a big deal. Like I think in the long run, that's probably good for everybody in the Western Conference. Phoenix is going to be hamstrung by that deal by the end of it. But they're they're a title contender again this year, right? Like um, I do, you know, I like the little tiny things they did around the edges. Um, I think they were going to be they're going to be really really good. So that to me made them, you know, continue to have them be a title contender. Um, Kawhi resigning for four, four years will probably mean that Paul George resigns eventually, and so the Clippers will, will for the next you know four years probably still be back up on top of of the Western Conference. Um, the Warriors, I think, did some nice things, and in, in that clearly people want to be in Golden State and sign there. I think Otto Porter for the minimum seems like a pretty good deal, though he was pretty bad in his last stint and the knee problems, and he he's not in the physical condition he used to be. So, um, you know, a question of whether or not. You know, he actually ever can get back. He's he's almost on a Jabari Barker, Parker trajectory at this point. Um, so no, I don't think there were a lot. Like I thought Philadelphia, I can't remember what they were, but I thought, okay, re-signing Danny Green for $10 million and a few of their around-the-edges moves were really good, but nothing significant. I don't think Russell Westbrook changed the Lakers. In fact, I don't know that I think it makes them better. So um, I am not, you know, <clears throat> I'm, I don't think anyone... I don't think there's a great change. Like if you look at the betting lines, there's not some team that like suddenly is up there that didn't used to be. It's it's right back with the Lakers, the Nets, and the Bucks as the three teams. The Bucks added did something interesting. The Nets did some interesting things too. They like just minor subtle things. But Mills. I they were, huh? Mills. Yeah, he's pretty old now. Um, so I'm not, you know. Uh, uh, they didn't have much of a backup point guard to Kyrie Irving. I think Teruzzo, who just signed with someone today, maybe the Warriors, um, you know, is a nice player. And I guess Mills is probably better. But I think Patty's, you know, pretty deep on the dark backside. But, yeah, I mean, it's, hey, it's a veteran who knows how to play those guys. You know, Rudy Gay, same thing. It's like I'm not going to tell you Rudy Gay, I think, makes the Jazz a championship team. He's just 30, he's turned 35 in five, four days for 36. Like, you just – but they just know how to play. They've been there. They've had all these experiences. They're certainly important. How about Whiteside? Pretty interested in this one. I mean, my natural instinct is that this is, you know, over the years has been a player who, like, for me, partially because he had a rivalry with Rudy, right? And 
you know, tried to claim he was on Rudy's level and was like, come on, like, what are you doing? Um, but you look at him in Portland, which is a team that plays almost, you know, they're not the same. And if I was around our coaching staff and said played identically basketball, they're the coaches of both sides, Terry Stotts, Quinn Snyder's staff over the last few years would like come after me and be like, what the hell are you talking about? But kind of fundamentally, there's a lot of similarities. You know, you've got two scoring guards and you've got drop bigs, right? And Hassan Whiteside in Portland two years ago was just flat out good. Like he just, he, he helped them. Um, there's been question marks about his kind of off off-court stability, I guess you call it, ever since he did a few high schools and a few colleges and then came to Sacramento and to open his NBA career, if I remember correctly, and, yes. and then lasted like 14 games and then disappeared for like two years. And that label's been on him the whole time, you know, rightfully or wrongfully, I, I don't know, but talking to people in Portland, it was wrongfully. Their comments were that his teammates liked him um, and that every, you know everyone enjoyed having him. Um, you know, watching him over the years, I haven't thought he's always been, you know, focused and plugged in as much as he needed to be every night, but we'll see. And frankly, the jazz have a lot of options if he's not, but I do think it's pretty interesting, right? Like he's seven, one, he's seven, seven standing reach. Like you've, you're not going to get to the rim 48 minutes of seven, seven or longer standing reach. Like you're just not going to get to the rim against us. And that's a huge analytical advantage on the defensive end. We're pl- we play a style that is, I think should match to him perfectly if he can do it. You know, we we move our bigs on the pick and roll, but we don't trap, we don't double team. We we really play the simplest defensive style in the world, which is, you know, basically drive your guy to Rudy and let him protect the rim and force him into two, you know, mid-range twos. Um, again, oversimplifying. And and then on the offensive end, like he's like when you look at his pick and roll numbers over the years, like with guards that are similar to Donovan or Mike Conley or Joe Ingles, it's pretty good. Um, 1.1 points per pick and roll, which is really good. And he's, you know, out there with some of the, you know, with Dame and those guys, and he was good with Wade. And and then the final one I have is just, and this is just, he spent five years in Miami. Like, and I get by the end of Miami, people there were really frustrated because Bam out of Bayou was really good. So it wasn't like they wanted more Bam and less Hassan Whiteside. But on the other end, like, if you're a total knucklehead, you're not spending five years in Pat Riley's system. So I'm pretty intrigued by it, and I think it's going to be an upgrade. Derek last year, just I, I just think it was glaring every time he came in the game how much people just went and attacked the rim, and it's just because he's six nine compared to seven two. Well, we don't have that anymore. I also think the other thing with Favors is you know wearing the heat pack on the side and having the back issues. You know he even though he wasn't as big, he was athletic enough when he was younger and healthier, so compensated for that. But when he tells you after a game, I just couldn't get loose and move. And then the next night he does. He says, I just feel differently. I just think that's, you know, that's an indicator of where that's trending. And obviously he was way more expensive than Whiteside. So I think getting to Whiteside, the question is, he was 30 years old. He was in Portland. He was playing with uh, a superstar player, another star player on a good team, and he was engaged. He went to Sacramento and he probably looked around at some point and thought, what are we doing, and became disengaged, at which point the coaches are like, what are we doing with this 31-year-old guy who just isn't, isn't all in? So I can see how that could break down that way. Or, hey, he's 31, and he's starting to lose a step, and if you're a big guy who doesn't move well, you're going to get exposed, and it's going to be hard for coaches to play you. And yeah, I think, so there's a bunch which of Which of those stories is true? Right. I mean, I think on all three, on Favors and Whiteside, what you just said, DJ, I'm going to go all over the map. There were quotes from the players that told us this. So 
Like the first thing on Derek was it just always was bizarre to me that opening press conference he had where he was just like, yeah, I'm fine. Like I'll come play 15 minutes a night. I was like, whoa, why? Like it just was weird to me. Like you just mm-hmm. don't hear. I love Derek and maybe he was love for Utah. Maybe New Orleans was so bad. Maybe it was personal, right? There's got, there's a reason. I'm not criticizing the choice. And from our standpoint, it was great. We got favors and basically traded Derek favors for a first round draft pick in the long run, which is a great trade. But it was just an interesting moment to me in his opening press conference where he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to come here and just, you know, I'll play 15, 20 minutes a night. Da, da. And like, even when he said it, I was like, you know, I'm learning 15, 20 to be played. And it was just a bizarre thing. It was like, just like, it didn't seem like basketball had a lot to do why Derek came back. Just I don't know what was going on in his life or how bad New Orleans was or whatever. But it just didn't line up. The second one was Derek's comment in the playoffs when he was so good. And I interviewed him and I asked him, like, you know, he's like, well, it's just the playoffs. And it was like, well, then what were you doing in the regular season? Like, is your body just... So both these things just led me to believe that Derek's body is just fighting him so badly at this point in his career that, like, he's just going to ramp it up for, like, that moment he has to. Well, that's hard. Um, so I think so. White said an interesting comment in his press conference about where he said, I'm excited to like the game again. So last year clearly sucked. Um, it's not great to have a player, like, disengage with the game, like, when that's your profession. But... It was interesting that he said that. Like that tells me that I, that's why I'm kind of stemming back to his Portland and Miami years, and just kind of wop, wiping Sacramento off the table. Um, and I don't have endless respect for everything that's going on in Sacramento, so that's pretty easy for me to do. Um, and so, therefore, that's where I'm pretty optimistic on what I think Whiteside can probably do um, for the Jazz. And also, just think the like the your point, the minimum contract is like, that's a pretty like 200 and what 58 starts in his career or something for a minimum contract. That's pretty great. So I'm looking at a story written by Dan Feldman and he's got the jazz in facing a nearly $39 million luxury tax liability, uh, as it stands now with their roster set. And obviously they didn't trade those guys from Bogdanovich making 18 and a half down to Royce. Uh, I think about just under nine and, Joe's in the 13, 14 range. You think that they're prepared to go ahead and do this and, and pay this bill as we head on into the season? I mean, I think that bill's... Do you understand how you pay luxury tax, too? Do you guys all know this? Explain it. One check, one day. Got to have a little liquidity. You got to have a little bonus cash sitting over million dollars of liquidity on a day. To be clear, a lot of these people who are very wealthy, who own teams, their money isn't in cash. It's in assets. But, it's, a, it's a mix well, around the league. Some people have right, but no liquidity. Have, some have some, and some have a lot. Let's say you have unbelievable liquidity. Let's say you have $100 million of liquidity, which would be a crazy number, right? You yeah. just gave away 40% of it. And that's at the end of the season, right? I think it's July 1, yeah, usually on the, on the calendar. And that's a crazy number. Yeah. The other thing is the number your luxury tax number does not hold until the end of the season. So yeah, that's what I'm saying. So here's here's what really matters. What's our record January first? Right. Like let's be really honest about it. We're twenty five and twenty five. Or January first we would be fifteen and fifteen. And Ryan Smith is staring a forty million dollar check and we're a five hundred team. Time to make moves. We're 25 and 5, then he's making a $40 million luxury tax payment for the chance for a run of championship. 
It's incredible. It's insane. It's like, I'm not one who thinks of the luxury tax as some piece of bravado. And in fact, as a jazz fan, it was super interesting to me to watch some of the reaction by jazz fans on kind of the self, like this inward bubble rather than looking outward when like the jazz made the favors deal, which was clearly a luxury tax deal and even kind of traded the first round pick, which was clearly luxury tax, like makes sense to do that when you're in the tax. The tax is the best thing that's ever happened to the Utah jazz. Because? So the fact that we're victimized, but fine, go to the rules, but it's the only reason we have a chance is because the luxury tax forces the Lakers to sign a bunch of million-dollar players instead of $7 million players and forces the Nets to do the same thing in Brooklyn and Milwaukee. Now, like, it, it's the, le- the league put in this collective bargaining agreement system. I think this is the single most untalked-about story in the league. The league put in this collective bargaining agreement, whatever it was now, eight, eight, nine years ago. There was a weird TV bubble bump in the middle that allowed for Kevin Durant to sign with the Warriors. We've had four different champions in four years. I think we have, what, 11 legitimate title contenders next year? When the year starts? This isn't the NBA I grew up with. Right. And if Kevin Durant had stayed in Oklahoma City, I think we'd probably have had seven champions in the last eight years since collective bargaining agreement started. So if Ryan Smith has to dump a contract here because $40 million in a single payment on July 1st is outrageously prohibitive for the richest people in the world, that's the system that's allowing the Jazz to be in competition to win. And so while, yes, it's painful to us, but, and people somehow turn this like a lack of commitment, it's not a moment of bravado to throw away your money in a ridiculous manner. It's a system that's allowed for mass competition across the board, and we are the biggest winners of it of all. So the fact that it costs us saves, like, that's too bad, but that's the system. And frankly, when the Jazz were making all their moves for the last two years, you were watching it if you were paying attention to the salary cap, going, okay, this is this is somewhat crazy. Like, you can't have favors, O'Neal, Ingles, Bogdanovich, Clarks. You can't do it all. It just doesn't work that way anymore, which is the beauty of the system because it keeps us with a chance to stay in it. I mean, the Bucks had to give – the Bucks two years ago gave let Malcolm Brogdon go. It was like their second-best player because the tax was going to be too crazy. So this comes to the point that you've always have to be drafting well and developing players. You don't have to find them in the draft if you find Royce O'Neal and Joe Ingles overseas, so be it. But you have to have inexpensive players in your rotation. Uh, and I suppose for a while you can bring them in as veterans as long as you've got a really good team. But are there any young guys who are about to break into the rotation? Or can I look at the roster right now and assume that I can anticipate 95% of Quinn Snyder's decisions? So I'm not sure I agree with your premise there. Because the truth is, if you're good, your draft picks aren't very good. And so you do have to find Royce O'Neal and Joe Ingles, who over time develop. But if, like in the playoffs last year, what first-round draft pick in the last – I don't know, I'm actually doing this off the top of my head – was there a first-round draft pick in the last two or three years that contributed for any of the final four, final eight teams? Uh, to your point, even if I can't think of one now, there aren't very many. So the odds are against you. Bridges and Aiton. Okay, yeah, so Bridges is three years out. He contributed. That's a great pick. Aiton's three, four, three or four, three yeah, years out. Luca, obviously. Right, Trey Young, obviously. But that's like you're drafting one through three, right? 
Bridges is a great pick. Philadelphia just, or Phoenix just nailed that. Um, and then Clippers had Terrence Mann was a second round pick. We had nobody. Denver has Michael Porter Jr. Had a great pick. Yeah. Uh, Brooklyn had Bruce Brown, maybe if he's still in his third year, second round pick for Detroit on Miami. I'm probably forgetting someone when doing this off the top of my head. But so at this point, they don't have to right. develop. But at this point, they don't have to develop young guys. You think as long as you can get veterans who can play at the minimum, it serves the same purpose. Right. I actually think that's, Frank, you know, they're not that much. The young guys aren't that much cheaper than the veteran minimum right. players. And they're not that much better when you're drafting it 20 and 30 and things like that. Like, um, you know, you have the outliers, right? Um, frankly, Donovan's just in his fourth year. So, he's you know, he's close to counting in this conversation. Um and there was somebody, Philadelphia has Fiebel, who's contributing. Um, frankly, though, Philadelphia's youth, I think, is what their problem still is. Like, I think they're caught. Their way, their roster's built a little bit right now is with two very young stars. They don't, I didn't think they had enough Danny Greens around them. Like, that's, they would probably solve some of their problems if they had a few more vets floating around the team. So when you look at the situation with the guy, teams getting better in offseason moves and it's debatable, uh, how much uh, in terms of getting guys back from injury, and I'm looking at specifically Denver and the Warriors as far as them being able to move up? So I I can't tell on the – like, do we think Jamal Murray and Kawhi Leonard are going to play? Like, ACL's kind of become like an 12-18-month deal in the NBA now, right? Yeah, I have low expectations for Murray because his was a complete tear. I don't know when they say a partial tear of Kawhi. I don't know what that means. It may not mean anything. It may mean it may be physically just as devastating as a complete tear. I don't know that. So it's hard for me to guess on Kawhi. The thing is, Kawhi has taken so long with injuries, maybe because he's been nursing a partial tear for a long time. I wouldn't rule that out. I don't know that, but I wouldn't rule it out. Um, but I, I always expect him to sit quite a bit, so... You know, are they going to be back at the 50-game mark next year? Well, they might be at the 50-game mark just with that roster by itself. I mean, there's a lot of teams that are going 50 games in the West next year, and that's a lot of games. But Phoenix, L.A., Utah, L.A., Denver, Dallas. How about the Warriors? Warriors. Though? Okay. Seven, seven teams should win 50 next year. Maybe nobody wins 55. And, you know, it, it doesn't feel like there's anybody in the West right now other than Houston and Oklahoma. Like, Houston and Oklahoma City feel like they're about to win 14 games. And that will, you know, you're, you know, it's interesting is when you start breaking down the schedule, like, I think going 4-0, and like, the little things are going to matter here when the schedule comes out in a week or two is, like, who are you only playing three times? Like, if you get unlucky and only play, if we get Oklahoma, we're guaranteed to get Oklahoma City four times. If we get Houston only three times, like, oh. And frankly, like, for all of the, like Portland with let's not forget that Portland with Dame Willard, CJ McCollum, Norman Powell, and Yusuf Nurkic um, were the best offensive team in the NBA. They were the number one offense in all the NBA. Like I think they're a 50 win team too. There's eight 50 win playoff teams in the Western conference. And I think they could be divided between 50 and 55. There's no way they will be eight 50 win teams. Uh, of course not, but, like, I get your point. There's the potential there. What I was saying, though, was more 50 games into the season, a little mm-hmm. past halfway, are they going to be back playing every game? I don't think Murray will be. Maybe Kawhi can, but I don't know that he yeah. will. And so then, and then, so 
I love everyone loves Clay Thompson and everyone loves and the Clay Thompson narrative is fabulous and he's sat on a kayak in the ocean and it's really cool and he's just the coolest dude alive and he's like <laughs> one of the league's favorite players of all the players and he's just awesome and so everyone's rooting for him but has anyone like stopped and thought about what he's doing like he hasn't played in what two and a half seasons now off an ACL and Achilles tendon on the same leg yeah do we really do we really think are we have we reached a I mean Kevin Durant just you know, medical miracle last year. Um, have we really reached a medical point where you can do that? Because if you can, that's amazing. But last month when I was down in California for Pac-12 Media Day, I saw on the Strand in Manhattan Clay Thompson riding a bike, and he looked good. Well, that's you know, I saw him kayaking in the ocean. He looked awesome. <laughs> I can't one-up you guys. I haven't seen him except on TV and clips. I mean, I think... Um, so, and then, you know, kind of to our point, like, we're all going to fall in love with the Warriors because they have Wiseman and Kamunga and Moody. And so they've done, it's interesting what they've done is they've taken these three young picks in their draft picks and they may have built themselves they're going to be good for a while. I don't think those three guys are going to help them win a game right now. Kevin Pelton always talks about like this, and it's such a great thing. Kevin Pelton says the number one statistical mistake that he sees are when a player's injured going into the draft and a team lets him slide because he's not going to play the first year. And his point is like, there's 2% of players in the draft that end up ever giving you a positive wins above a placement level player in the first year of the NBA. And one's magic. They, none of them contribute to wins in their first year. They're all awful. The league's too hard. So having Blake Griffin or Michael Porter Jr. or even Nick Collison sit out for a year before they play actually shows an increase in their trend for wins above replacement level than a player actually played their first year and got overwhelmed. Like, let them watch, let them weight train, let them work. Like, there's a whole concept of redshirting in the NBA that's never been talked about that actually statistically makes total sense. So while we all are going to love Kaminga and Mood, and we're going to talk about them matching how they look around, you know, Clay and Steph and Draymond, I'm not sure that that actually vibes at all. Like, I think I might put them as the eighth of the eight, even with this greatest Steph is. Because I just can't really believe that Clay is going to be okay, and I just don't really believe those young kids are going to help them in, in this next season. Their championship rosters were underrated. Is Draymond Green as good as he was then? So they've they no. taken a hit there. And Iguodala and guys like Livingston off the bench. I mean, it's not... There's no celebrity power there, but they're good basketball players, and they just don't have that many good basketball players right. now. Right. And, and they were doing some things that the rest of the league wasn't doing, and the league's caught up. The one I think is fascinating, and obviously it's going to be the must-watch team of the year, is the Lakers. Because I'm looking at them on paper, and my analysis of them on paper is they have to be the best defensive team in the league so that they can get misses, so they can run, and then when they run, you're dead. Because, right, you got Westbrook, LeBron, AD, and transition, it's over. But the pieces they put around the fringes are all old, right? Yeah. So now you're saying, okay, well, I need a 33 and older team to run every possession, which to me seems hard. Second thing is there's, as much as we all love transition and playing early and all these things and the analytics show it's better, there's actually just a limit to it, right? Like you just, 
just only so many position, possessions that you actually get to run on. They're off misses and turnovers and some things like that. But it's like if you look at the amount of possessions in the NBA that are in transition over the last 20 years, there's just there's a peak. Like you, you don't get over like 20% of your possessions in transition. So like for the other 80 possessions, what are they doing in the half court? And how are they going to score? I just don't see it. And then the other one is like, they are going to be somewhat unbelievable in the sense that like Westbrook's, their team is, is Dwight Howard at center, 7-1, Anthony Davis 7 at their 2, LeBron James as their 3 at 6-9, Russell Westbrook massive as their point guard, and I guess Taylor Horton Tucker or someone of that sort as their shooting guard is pretty big. So, I mean, they're mammoth. Like, trying to score them in the half court out of size is is going to be brutal. But, like, the minute they play Carmelo, the minute they play Russ, like, these are bad defense players, one-on-one, unless they're engaged. And I just can't imagine that they're going to be that engaged. So, I don't, I don't quite, they'll make the playoffs and then they'll, I don't know. I just don't see it, actually. I don't even think they'll be that much of a beast in the playoffs because then your possessions and transition are down to 15%. So, I, you know, I've, I've eaten a lot of crow over the Lakers over the year because I think I willed them to be bad and I'm going to do it again. <laughs> Stay consistent. Well, I mean, like, it's interesting. Their championship year, which I'm not asterisking at all in the bubble, I think it's totally incredible. But, like, they had a glaring weakness that year. They were 22nd in the league in half-court offense. And so, like, I kept waiting in the playoffs for them to play a good team defensively. And if you go look at their run, I don't think they played an above-average defensive team in their playoff run until they got to Miami. And then Miami and everybody hurt. So... Like, they win the title, they deserve it. I'm not saying that. They just, they didn't ever saw, have to deal with the issue that that they had, that I thought was their weakness. Like, this is the NBA now. Sorry, now you got me on a, sorry, Jake, your breaks are screwed here. <laughs> this is the NBA now. To, to wrap up our whole conversation, there are 10 or 11 title contenders. Everyone's got like a 12, 13. The best of those 10 or 11 teams have like an 18%, 20% chance to win the title, and the least of those have like a 10%. And it depends your route. Two years ago, the Los Angeles Lakers won the title because they didn't play a top 10 defensive team in the route. Had they, I think they lose. This year, the Lakers, while injured, also played a top five defensive team and looked terrible. The Phoenix Suns make it this year because they played a route that got them there. We lost this year because we ended up running into the team that could do the thing that is our bugaboo. Our bugaboo is if you can, if Rudy's off the floor, we're terrible defensively. And if while Rudy's on the floor, you can negate him, we're terrible defensively. Like, but there's only one team in the West that could have done that to us. The Milwaukee Bucks, who've had a 15% chance to win the title, maybe even higher with the best record in the Eastern Conference for two of the last three years, ran into a Miami team that before Giannis had fully developed and they'd made some changes on their roster and Chris Middleton had make, taken the next step when they switched one through five with all athletic guys, similar to the way we did last year, looked just awful and got swept and beat by, by Miami in the bubble. The year before that, they ran into you know whatever loss they had. And if you look back, it's a matchup. And this year, they didn't have that problem, right? They, they got a beaten up early Miami team. And Philadelphia is the team to me that causes them huge problems because they put Joel and beat at the rim and Giannis can't get there. And Ben Simmons can guard Giannis. And that's a terrible matchup for, for Milwaukee if they have to play Philadelphia. And, and so, or an elite level three-point shooting team is how Milwaukee loses because they end up allowing, you know, they're willing to allow all these threes. They didn't run into either of those teams this year. So, to me, what we have in the NBA now is 10 teams, 11 teams, with a range from like 20% to 10% to win a title. And, you know, I think I feel like Milwaukee had 14% chance, 18% chance each of the last three years, and they got one of the three, which is kind of what the odds would say would happen. 
PK's horrified because he just watched me eat a whole box of Built Bars during that answer. <laughs> <laughs> There's, those are big 18... 18- that's 18 bars right there. They, they're generous with their size. Oh, their he, he can do it. I can do it. I can throw down food during commercial break. So, Well, that answer was long enough that you should have been able to like finish a Happy Meal. <laughs> <laughs> All right, David. Uh, Jake is really worried that we now have more minutes of commercials than we have time left in the show, so we should probably go. So you mean I'm never allowed to do 9 o'clock in the morning ever again? No, no. I enjoyed it. And I knew it was going to go like this because you hadn't been on for a couple weeks. And we'd had a couple conversations. And I knew you were going to get them in. And I thought, oh, he's not going to get it. No. And then there it was right in that last answer. It was beautiful. Can I, can, can I leave nope. you with a little, like, nope. quick big picture thought on life that I'd like to share today? Oh, boy. Um, just And then it'll be, it'll, you'll be like, oh. Um, for all the people out there that own restaurants and all the waiters out there, and all the managers out there. Could you please, as owners, train your staff, and managers train your staff, and as a staff member, please take allergies seriously? Because ending my birthday in the emergency room last night, because the chef hadn't communicated to the staff that they had pistachios in a meal, was not the greatest way to end a birthday yesterday. So if people could please take food allergies really, really seriously if they're in the food business, I'd greatly appreciate it, and so would all of us that have this issue. Thank you, David. See ya. <laughs> David Locke on the NBA, restaurant food, and built bars. Right here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone.